The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Due to the graphic nature and descriptions of this mystery, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and mutilation that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Joseph Pizer was a well-known resident of Whitechapel in 1888. He was a bootmaker, often seen in the long leather apron he wore for work. But he wasn't known for his craftsmanship. Pizer was a scourge on the local sex workers that frequented the corners around his shop. He terrorized the women, threatening to injure or kill them if they didn't share their earnings with him. When Polly Nichols was brutally murdered in August of 1888, many of the sex workers who knew her blamed Pizer. It was easy to imagine his threats progressing into murder. But before police could locate Pizer, the star, a widely circulated newspaper, published an accusatory profile of him. Pizer's neighbors read the article and swarmed to his home in an angry mob ready to hold him accountable for murder. In fear for his life, Pizer fled and went into hiding. As more women turned up dead and eviscerated, the killer came to be known as Leather Apron, a reference to Pizer's work uniform. But when police finally located him, Pizer provided verifiable alibis for the murders. He was released. The fearsome response to the accusations against Pizer shows the immense public determination to bring the killer to justice. The police and community of Whitechapel kept up the intense search. But even over a hundred years later, we still know very little about the killer, now known to the public as Jack the Ripper. While the greatest mystery about Jack is his identity, there are also unanswered questions about how he was able to murder in public when he had an entire city looking for him. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries on the Parcast Network. 
I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of Parcast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our second episode on the unexplained mystery of Jack the Ripper. Last week, we investigated all the gruesome details of the canonical five murders in the miserable Whitechapel district of London. Jack favored sex workers and killed all five women by suffocating them, slashing their throats, and, if he was really having a good night, disemboweling them. This week, we'll look into three aspects of the mystery. The why, the how, and most importantly, the who. First, we'll unpack the why behind the murders by looking into the motivators that drove Jack to kill. Then it's on to the how. Five women were obscenely murdered in public, but somehow the killer walked free. Although the police were publicly very committed to solving these heinous murders, perhaps their intentions were not so straightforward. Once we exhume Jack's motivators and methods from the tangle of hoaxes, cover-ups, and scams that clutter Ripperology, perhaps we'll be a bit closer to knowing who Jack was and why he walked away from murder scot-free. Jack the Ripper's victims, location, and method of killing were all very specific and consistent. He exclusively killed sex workers in the Whitechapel district of London's East End. An examination of his choices of victim and location may illustrate why he killed. At the time of the murders in 1888, the East End was crammed with all of London's most desperate poor. All five of Jack's victims, Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Kate Eddowes, and Mary Kelly, lived there. Jack the Ripper's choice of victim could have been fueled by a hatred for the poor. Disdain for the impoverished was a popular opinion at the time, particularly in the West End, the part of London populated by the upper class. The attitude of the upper class is well summed up by writer George Sims, who was writing his pamphlet, How the Poor Live, while the Ripper murders were being perpetrated. Sims wrote, quote, This mighty mob of famished, diseased, and filthy helots is getting dangerous. The barriers which have kept it back are rotten and giving way. Its fevers and its filth may spread to the homes of the wealthy. Its lawless armies may sally forth. The wealthy West End not only lacked sympathy for London's most impoverished citizens, it openly mistrusted and mistreated them. In 1887, less than a year before the Ripper began his spree, Trafalgar Square was occupied by a tent city. Even if you've never heard of Trafalgar Square, you've probably seen it. It's home to internationally recognizable landmarks, like the statue of Charles I on his horse. The tent city was full of London's most poverty-stricken, vulnerable, and exploited. Crippled dock workers, diseased sweatshop workers, widows, and children. 
or as West End writer George Sims described them, the scum of London. The well-heeled West End resented the grimy intrusion of the poor into their side of London and agitated the police to take action. Metropolitan police responded with a force of several thousand constables and soldiers armed with grenades and spears. Sounds like overkill. Overkill would be an understatement. The squatters were vastly outnumbered. Police arrested hundreds and injured even more as they drove the inhabitants of the square back to East End. The West End Press celebrated by naming the happy event Bloody Sunday. It appears many West End Londoners shared Jack the Ripper's opinion. The filthy, poor East Enders were best disposed of. Jack the Ripper could have been a disgruntled, well-off West Ender looking to clean up his city. After all, hunting was a sport of the upper classes, and every proper gentleman of the time knew how to disembowel a deer. So it's possible that Jack preyed on the poor, unsuspecting sex workers of Whitechapel out of a burning hatred for the impoverished people that lived there. But Jack the Ripper could have chosen to kill in Whitechapel for a much more practical reason. It was an ideal place to get away with murder. First, there was the landscape. Whitechapel was a labyrinth of alcoves, cubbyholes, alleys, and passages. It was easy for an outsider to get turned around. When the Scotland Yard toured American policemen around Whitechapel on November 4, 1888, the Pall Mall Gazette described the streets as a network of narrow passageways as dark and loathsome as the great network of sewers underneath. The passages were so convoluted that even police familiar with the area found it difficult to secure murder scenes. Police would be certain they'd blocked all passages leading to a crime scene, but they would soon find dozens of people invading. There were always other routes to access the scene the police never considered. Evading the police was as simple as turning a corner. Adding to the complication, most people in Whitechapel didn't lock their doors. In an 1889 interview, Chief Inspector Henry Moore of the Scotland Yard said, quote, The murderer has only to lift the latch of the nearest house and walk through it and out the back way, end quote. You'll remember from part one that John Davis, who encountered Dark Annie's mutilated body in the backyard of his lodging house, reported to police that the doorway to the yard where Annie's body was found was never locked. Next, there was the darkness to consider. A popular and salacious newspaper at the time, The Star, reported that the cry of the East End is for light the electric light to flash into the dark corners of its streets and alleys, the magic light of sympathy and hope to flash into the dark corners of wrecked and marred lives. The wealthy West End was lit by gas lamps after sunset, but the East End was pitch black, literally and figuratively. There was plenty of privacy and opportunity for a clandestine murder and an efficient escape. But perhaps the most important feature Whitechapel offered Jack was easy access to victims. Ironically, the same attributes that made Whitechapel an ideal environment for murder also made it ideal for prostitution. The dark hidey holes that Jack used for his sadistic killings were the same places that sex workers and their clients went for a few minutes of privacy. Despite the stigma and danger, sex work was an attractive profession for women of the East End. 
A sex worker could earn more in a single night than they would in a week at a sweatshop. Plus, sex workers got to build their own schedule, and drinking on the job was encouraged. Jack would not have had any difficulty coming upon a suitable victim, an inebriated woman looking to spend time alone with a strange man. But Jack didn't choose to murder sex workers simply because they were easy pickings. Some ripperologists have speculated that Jack was seeking revenge against a woman who wronged him, perhaps a partner who cheated on him or left him, or even another sex worker who gave him a venereal disease. In 1988, the FBI developed a serial killer profile for Jack the Ripper based on witness statements and crime scene evidence. They concluded that Jack, quote, hated women and was probably intimidated by them. He most likely had an unhappy childhood, was probably raised by a woman alone, and may have been sexually molested by that woman, perhaps his mother, end quote. Jack's hatred of women, whether it was tinged with classism, childhood trauma, or adult betrayal, is undeniable. But Jack's treatment of his victims was very specific. He did not sexually assault his victims. Instead, he killed them as quickly and quietly as possible by strangling them. Then he would proceed to mutilate the body, sometimes removing sexual and reproductive organs. Modern analysis of Jack's very specific modus operandi lands him in the category of product killer. A product killer is less interested in the murder itself than in what he does with the body after the kill. This explains why the Ripper preferred to kill his victims by strangulation, saving the slashing for after they were dead. For example, the double-event murder of both Elizabeth Stride and Kate Eddowes on September 30, 1888, makes more sense when viewed through the lens of a product killer. For Jack, the pleasure came from what he did to the body after the murder rather than the act of murder itself. Because he was interrupted before he was able to mutilate Elizabeth's guts and remove her uterus, he immediately attacked another victim, Kate Eddowes. Now that we have a better understanding of the why behind the Ripper's murders, let's consider the how. For example, you'll recall from part one that the second victim of the double event, Kate Eddowes, was killed in Mitre Square. Police records and witness statements show that Mitre Square was being patrolled every five to ten minutes by constables the night of the double event. But despite this hefty police presence, Jack managed to lure Kate to the square, strangle her, slash her throat open, and mutilate her. Jack cut Kate open from groin to sternum and pulled her intestines from her body, leaving them draped over her shoulder. He cut out about two feet of intestine and laid it beside her body. And then he delicately removed one of her kidneys and took it with him before disappearing into the night. Jack could have performed all this with near superhuman efficiency in the ten minutes of privacy he had between police patrols. Or the police waited until Jack was finished to raise the alarm. We'll discuss the flawed social structures that allow Jack to get away with these heinous crimes right after this. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. 
Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Now back to the story. Now that we've addressed why, we can move on to the question of how Jack managed to commit his murders in crowded public areas and get away time and time again. In part one, we touched on the possibility that the police, either intentionally or not, ran interference for Jack, allowing him to kill with impunity. This might seem like an outlandish theory, but there is a troubling amount of evidence supporting it. Around the time of the Ripper murders, the police force was not considered very trustworthy. An organized police force was a relatively new concept in 1888. The Metropolitan Police was one of the first formal police organizations in the world, and it was formed only 60 years before the Ripper murders. The impoverished people of Whitechapel distrusted police after the brutality of Bloody Sunday. The wealthy residents of the West End were infuriated that the police had been unable to produce the killer, especially considering that Whitechapel was brimming with officers in plain clothes, hoping to gain intelligence, or better yet, catch Jack in the act. The Star filled its front page with this scathing performance review of Metropolitan Police Commissioner Sir Charles Warren on October 1st, 1888, the day after the double event. Quote, The police, of course, are helpless. We expect nothing of them. The Metropolitan Force is rotten to the core, and it's a mildly farcical comment on the hopeless unfitness of Sir Charles Warren that when red-handed crime is stalking the streets, he has assigned his men the fresh duty of sharing with Providence the looking after drunken men, end quote. The star derided Warren's choice to saturate Whitechapel with undercover officers because the Whitechapel community had already formed their own Justice League that functioned much the same way. Local tradesmen and business owners established the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, which organized other locals to keep watch for the Ripper in action and to source leads. Obviously, if Whitechapel formed their own volunteer law enforcement group, Confidence in the police was not high. Londoners on both ends of the class ladder had good reason to mistrust the police. In the years following the Ripper murders, it's come to light that the Metropolitan Police obfuscated viable evidence and placed their investigation on evidence suspected to be fraudulent. Throughout the investigation of the murders, one of the only pieces of evidence the police had outside of the victims and crime scenes themselves were two pieces of mail that they believed to be written by the killer. But in the years following the Ripper murders, some upper-level police officials admitted that they suspected the letters were a hoax. The first letter was originally sent to the Central News Agency, an organization of journalists that generated stories for newspapers to print. 
the CNA didn't find the letter credible and sent it along to Scotland Yard. The police also disregarded the letter as just another piece of fraudulent correspondence. Both the journalists and the police overlooked a letter that contained very specific information about the horrific double murder of Elizabeth Stride and Kate Eddowes. The letter was dated September 25, 1888, five days before the double event, but the writer predicted the Ripper's forthcoming kills. Most disturbingly, the letter also referenced the specific injury Kate Eddowes suffered to her ear, the first ear-related injury the Ripper delivered. The letter also mocked the police investigation, saying, quote, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. The next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? The letter was handwritten in red ink, but the letter's author wished it was blood, writing, quote, I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha ha. End quote. But the most chilling part of the letter was the writer's delight in what he called his work. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. I love my work and want to start again. My knife's so nice and sharp, I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. End quote. The letter was signed, quote, Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. End quote. This letter is the originator of the now world-famous name for the serial killer. At the time, the police believed that the killer had chosen that name for himself. On October 1st, 1888, the day after the double event, the Central News Agency received another postcard, written in the same macabre red ink. The Scotland Yard compared the handwriting on the postcard with the letter and concluded that they had both been written by the same person. The postcard read, quote, I was not kidding, dear old boss, when I gave you the tip. You'll hear about saucy Jackie's work tomorrow. Double event this time. Number one squealed a bit. Couldn't finish straight off. Had not got time to get ears off for police. Thanks for keeping the last letter back till I got to work again. Jack the Ripper. End quote. The timing of the card was chilling. It appeared to have been written just after Jack completed the murders of Elizabeth Stride and Kate Eddowes. But the most convincing detail, the writer's referral to having less time with one of the victims than he liked, and Elizabeth Stride had been left with her abdomen intact. Police had the letter and postcard reproduced on leaflets and distributed to the public in hopes that someone would recognize the handwriting. No promising suspects were identified, but Jack the Ripper's celebrity exploded. At face value, it appeared the police were making the best use they could of the little evidence they had. However, a senior police official named Sir Melville McNaughton wrote in his autobiography, Days of My Years, published in 1914, that he'd, quote, always thought he could discern the stained forefinger of the journalist. Indeed, a year later, I had shrewd suspicions as to the actual author, end quote. McNaughton's statement is pretty coy, but it suggests that he had doubts about the validity of the letters during the investigation, 
and those doubts were confirmed a year later. Years after the initial Ripper investigation, other high-level police officials also admitted to uncertainty over whether the letters were genuine. If police, especially at the highest levels, were dubious about the letters, it's very odd that these were the pieces of evidence the police chose to go public with. Ripperologists argued over the identity of the real author of the letters for decades. But in 1993, there was finally a break in the search when a letter written in 1912 was discovered. The letter was written by John George Littlechild, head of the secret department of Scotland Yard during the Ripper murders. Littlechild wrote, quote, With regard to the term Jack the Ripper, it was generally believed at the Yard that Tom Bulling of the Central News was the originator, end quote. If Littlechild was correct, the police not only had suspicions that the letters weren't genuine, they actually knew who the real author was, Thomas Bulling, a mid-level journalist working for the Central News Agency, the very same organization to whom the letters were addressed. Littlechild also wrote, quote, No journalist of my time got such privileges from Scotland Yard as Bulling, end quote. Other police officials confirmed that Bulling had unparalleled access to Scotland Yard and was particularly close to Assistant Commissioner James Monroe. There's no record of Bulling taking responsibility for authoring the letters. If Bulling did write them, his motivation is unclear. Because he worked for the Central News Agency, not a specific newspaper, a fake letter would not generate a lucrative exclusive. But the letters were very helpful to Bulling's friends over at Scotland Yard. They appeared to be hard evidence that could be shared with the public. The sense of forward momentum that tangible evidence created in the investigation was invaluable to the police. But assuming the letters were a hoax generated by Thomas Bulling, that progress was just an illusion to alleviate pressure from the public. And it appears that the police, at least at the highest levels, were aware that the letters did nothing to stop Jack from continuing to kill unobstructed. The police didn't just mislead the public with false evidence. They also suppressed potentially legitimate evidence, most notably the testimony of Israel Schwartz. On September 30, 1888, the night of the double event, Schwartz, a Hungarian Jewish immigrant, came forward to the police claiming that he witnessed Elizabeth Stride's murder. At 12.45 a.m., Schwartz claimed he approached the gateway to the yard where Elizabeth's body would be found just 15 minutes later. Police later deduced that Elizabeth Stride was killed right around the time Schwartz walked by. Schwartz saw, quote, a man stop and speak to a woman who was standing in the gateway. The man tried to pull the woman into the street, but he turned her around and threw her down on the footway. The woman screamed three times, but not loudly. Schwartz wanted to avoid getting involved in a scuffle, so he crossed the street. Ahead of him was another man, leaning in a doorway and lighting his pipe. The man who was arguing with a woman called out, Lipsky. Schwartz then noticed that the man lighting his pipe started following him, so he broke into a run. When he finally looked over his shoulder several blocks later, he was no longer being followed. 
Just 15 minutes later, Louis Deemschutz and his skittish pony walked into the same yard and found Elizabeth Stride's body. You'll recall from part one that Deemschutz's pony shied away at something or someone that Louis couldn't see. It's possible that the Ripper himself could have been lurking in the dark yard. Perhaps it was one of the men who chased Schwartz down the street. Ripperologists have speculated that the shout of Lipsky could have been a warning between the two men that Schwartz had witnessed the crime. After Schwartz gave his statement to police, he was taken to see Elizabeth Stride's body in the mortuary. He identified her as the woman he had seen screaming on the ground only a few hours earlier. Although Schwartz only saw Elizabeth in passing, her face was not mutilated during her murder, and it's possible he would have been able to identify her. But although Schwartz's witness account seemed to fit in with the timeline of Elizabeth's murder, it was not mentioned at the inquest, and very few newspapers covered it. The Star, the only paper to cover Schwartz's statement in depth, added the caveat that his statement was not wholly accepted. Now, it's possible that police kept Schwartz's testimony from the public strategically. During the Ripper investigation, police were flooded with thousands of tips and confessions that they didn't have the resources to follow up on. Releasing tenable information like Schwartz's testimony could make false confessions seem credible. But there's no evidence that police did any substantive investigation based on Schwartz's statement. There are several internal police memos regarding Schwartz, but no record that action was ever taken to follow up on them. Overall, the evidence shows that the police chose to let Schwartz's account fall through the cracks. There's another notable piece of evidence from the double event that was famously obscured by police. You'll recall from part one that graffiti written in chalk was found near Kate Eddowes' body on one of the buildings bordering Mitre Square. The graffiti read, quote, The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing, end quote. The word Jews is curiously misspelled, J-U-E-W-S. Police Commissioner Sir Charles Warren controversially ordered the graffiti washed away. He claimed he wanted it removed in order to avoid inflaming the strong anti-Semitism in the area. Violent anti-Semitism is a well-documented problem of the time. The London Observer reported that the mob who went after Joseph Leather Apron Pizer, a Jewish immigrant himself, shouted anti-Semitic slurs and insults. Quote, It was repeatedly asserted that no Englishman could have perpetrated such a horrible crime, and it must have been done by a Jew, end quote. However, Warren's excuse that he was trying to protect local Jewish people doesn't hold up to basic logic. The message itself, although convoluted, states that Jewish people are not responsible for the murders. Even if the killer was hypothetically Jewish, it's unrealistic that he would pause his escape to write a graffiti message that wasn't even directly tied to the murders. There is another, much more sinister explanation for why Warren would have wanted to erase the graffiti. Many powerful members of the law enforcement team investigating the Ripper murderers were also affiliated with the Freemasons, a secretive British society. The graffiti message could have been a reference to Masonic canon. 
the Jews in the graffiti may not have been regarding Jewish people at all, but a reference to three assassins named Jubala, Jubilo, and Jubalum, who murdered the legendary master mason Hiram Abiff during a sacred Masonic ritual sometime in the 18th century. Collectively, the assassins are known as the Jews, spelled J-U-W-E-S. The spelling still isn't a perfect match to the graffiti, but because it was erased so quickly, there was no way to confirm the original spelling. Some ripperologists have speculated that the nonsensical graffiti message could have been intentional, so it could only be understood by fellow Masons. If the graffiti message is a reference to Masonic history, it follows that Jack was a Freemason himself. There's not much evidence suggesting that the Ripper murders were part of an organized Masonic plot, but it is possible that Jack could have been a Freemason run amok. Protecting Freemasonry would have been the first priority of any Freemason, superseding any other responsibility, even the oath taken by law enforcement officers to protect the British public. Remember, organized law enforcement was still a pretty new idea, and the Freemason Brotherhood was established in 1717, over a hundred years before the Metropolitan Police. Freemasons would have done anything to prevent the public from learning that Jack the Ripper was a Freemason, even allow innocent women to be killed. The Ripperologist who championed this theory, Bruce Robinson, framed the Freemason conspiracy in these terms. Quote, they weren't protecting Jack the Ripper. They were protecting the entire system of Freemasonry that Jack the Ripper was threatening. And to protect the system, they had to protect him. And Jack knew it. End quote. Once Jack knew that he was being protected by fellow Freemasons, he would have been emboldened. This explains why Jack opted for such daredevil execution, often missing police by just a few minutes. But the most chilling and convincing link between the Ripper murders and Freemasonry is found in Jack's specific ripping technique. Historically, Freemasons who defied the Masonic Oath were stalked, then approached from behind and had their throats slit from left to right. They were then disemboweled and left on display with their vital organs thrown over their shoulders. Jack slit the throat of all five of his victims and disemboweled two of them exactly as Freemason doctrine dictated. Then, for his final victim, Mary Jane Kelly, Jack took the mutilation and display of inner organs to an entirely new level. Jack seems to have lifted his modus operandi directly from Masonic canon and then horrifically expanded it. We'll look further into Jack's connection with Freemasonry after this. Now back to the story. Earlier, we explored the theory that Freemasons in law enforcement were impeding the discovery of Jack the Ripper's identity. While there are many convincing aspects to this theory, it does require some suspension of disbelief. The mutilation of the Ripper victims does bear some resemblance to Masonic punishment, but historic reports of Masonic disembowelment are not universally considered credible. Also, the logistics of a cover-up within the police organization would have been extremely complicated since multiple law enforcement organizations were involved, and certainly not all police officers were Freemasons. 
It's tough to believe that such a broad conspiracy could have remained under wraps for so many years. In the final portion of our story, we'll finally look into the most important question. Who was Jack the Ripper? We'll try to better understand what kind of person could have so effectively evaded apprehension from police. There are several theories on how Jack could have outsmarted law enforcement, but it's possible that they were simply looking for the wrong kind of killer. What if Jack wasn't a Jack at all, but a Jill? A reader letter published in the Evening News on October 6, 1888, raised the possibility that the killer was a woman. The writer, a woman herself, identified only by the initials J.O., wrote, quote, The idea is not to be laughed at. A woman accustomed to midwifery, I think, is more capable and likely to inflict the dreadful mutilation which has attended these murders than a man. The woman may have influence over her fellow sex, or might easily have, by mixing amongst them as pals, end quote. The most viable female ripper theory is a midwife. Midwives would have had some medical training and tools, making them well-prepared to execute the mutilations the ripper favored. Midwives also attended births at all hours of the day, which left them covered in blood. A bloody midwife walking the streets late at night would not have raised alarm. Midwives also performed abortions. The procedure was outlawed in Great Britain in 1888 and was extremely dangerous. But pregnancy was part of the job description for sex workers, and they were usually forced to support children on their own. These desperate circumstances led many sex workers to seek out the termination of their pregnancies, despite the risk. But if they trusted the wrong midwife to perform their abortion, the risk could increase quite a bit. A theory published in The Sun by a retired London detective, Arthur Butler, in 1972, posited that Polly Nichols, the Ripper's first victim, could have died after an abortion went sideways. The abortionist, seeking to cover up her mistake, brought Polly's body to the street and then mutilated her to disguise the evidence of the botched abortion. Other victims could have been murdered after they witnessed or suspected what the killer was up to. Some sources say that Mary Kelly, the Ripper's final and youngest victim, was pregnant at the time of her death. There is another witness statement from Mary Kelly's murder that fits chillingly well with the abortionist theory. In the early morning after Mary Kelly was murdered, but before her body was found, a neighbor named Caroline Maxwell was certain she saw someone wearing a shawl that belonged to Mary Kelly in the street. She assumed it was Kelly and even greeted her. Maxwell and other witnesses had seen Kelly wearing the shawl Maxwell described on multiple occasions. That shawl was not found among Kelly's possessions. It's possible that Maxwell bid good morning to Kelly's murderer, who had put on Kelly's clothes to cover her own bloody garments as she made her escape. Although the Jill the Ripper theory is an appealing explanation for how the Ripper was able to continue killing without detection, most Ripperologists don't give it much credence. Aside from Mary Kelly, none of the other Ripper victims showed signs of pregnancy or were even in their prime childbearing years. 
On top of that, their well-documented boozing habits would have made pregnancy unlikely. It's also worth remembering that abortion was already illegal, and it doesn't make a lot of sense to cover up a crime with another crime. An abortion gone wrong was just as illegal as a murder, and it would only bring on additional risk for a midwife to stage a murder scene out in public. Another theory favored by Ripperologists is that Jack plied his victims with gifts. All of the Ripper's victims were living hand-to-mouth and would have been very susceptible to any sign of kindness or small extravagance. If the Ripper met his victims during the day and gained their favor with gifts, he could arrange another meeting for that night. The rendezvous plan would allow him to arrive in the agreed-upon hidey-hole alone and avoid being seen with his victim by a witness. Each of the victims was found with an item on or near her body that seemed new or extraneous. When Polly Nichols left to get her DOS money, you'll remember from part one that she was very proud of her new hat trimmed with velvet. No one in her DOS house had ever seen her wearing the hat before the day she was murdered. Dark Annie, the Ripper's next victim, received three new brass rings in the days before her murder. They were missing when her body was found. Dark Annie was the only Ripper victim whose possessions were stolen. The killer might have just been reclaiming what started as his own property, but it's not clear why he wouldn't have also repossessed his other gifts. Perhaps the lure of escape was too strong, or the rings were taken by another opportunistic passerby. Both victims of the double event were also found with noticeably lavish items. You'll remember that the last person to see Elizabeth Stride alive, Constable Watkins, identified her by the bright flower pinned to her coat. At her inquest, he testified that it was, quote, a red rose and white maidenhair fern, end quote. This was a luxury she would not likely have purchased for herself. Kate Eddowes was found with a red leather cigarette case with shiny metal clasps. The case was in good condition. It looked new. This possession is especially notable because it would have fetched far more money and was certainly less essential than the boots her partner John Kelly pawned that morning for their breakfast. And finally, George Hutchinson, the last person to see Mary Kelly alive, observed Kelly's client handing her a new handkerchief before they disappeared upstairs into Kelly's room. This theory feels possible, but it's not perfect. The gifts were certainly not equal in value, and none of the victims were witnessed receiving the gifts or even talked about receiving them before their murder. Also, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, and Mary Kelly were all seen with clients minutes before their murder. If the goal was to avoid being seen with the victims, the plan failed miserably. Hundreds of Ripper suspects have been considered by law enforcement, historians, research analysts, and amateur Ripperologists for over 100 years. The suspects range from H.H. Holmes, a prolific American serial killer, to Francis Tumblety, an American medical con artist, to Frederick Bailey Deeming, a violent sailor, to Prince Albert Victor, Duke of Clarence and Avondale, a member of the British royal family. The truth is, we're no closer to identifying the Ripper now than we were the day his first victim was murdered. In all the research that's been done, there has never been a consensus about a most likely suspect. And as you can tell from our episode, there isn't even a consensus on how the murders were executed or why. 
no Ripper theory ever presented has been infallible. Holes, usually sizable ones, can be poked in every single one. The Ripper murders have not generated clarity or justice, but they have generated books, both fiction and nonfiction, websites, movies, television shows, museum exhibits, and more. Our collective obsession with the murders remains consistent, and research on the topic is not even close to exhausted. Perhaps it's better that the killer never be identified so that our fascination can continue. The writers of Freemasonry and the Ripper remarked, quote, It is a curious phenomenon that the human animal is, at one and the same time, both repelled and attracted by horror, end quote. The search for the Ripper's identity may very well be futile, and the best explanation for the Ripper murders might be found inside our own fixation upon them. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back with a new episode next Thursday. You can find more episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Hannah McIntosh and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. 